Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting something new, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. Probably the first thing we need to address is the fact that John's gospel appears to be very different in many respects from the other three. In fact, we often refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means to see together. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke can be seen together. They are very similar to each other. Matthew reads like a slightly longer version of Mark, kind of like a director's cut of the same movie. Luke seems to assume the basic structure of Mark, but he adds more of a human feel, and he fleshes out some of the secondary characters. But John is altogether different. And that is probably due in part to the fact that John was written last. So D.A. Carson, for example, has concluded that John had read Mark and probably Luke. It is not impossible that he read Matthew, but that is harder to prove. But if he had them before him as he wrote, he did not consult them, or at least he did not make verbatim use of them. John wrote his own book, closed quote. And that viewpoint accords with what we know from history. Church history suggests that John was the last of the four Gospels, and that shortly after it was written, it was bound up with the other three into a book that was generally called the Gospel. And it was always understood that John's perspective was a little different. Maybe it's best to think of it this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote at treetop level. They give you the perspective of a, of a robin sitting in the branches of a tree, looking down on Jesus and the disciples. You see their movements. You can listen in on Jesus' teaching. You can watch them travel throughout Galilee and eventually up to Jerusalem where Jesus is betrayed and crucified and where he rises again. You see all that and you experience all that. You hear all that almost like you are there at crowd level. Now, John, however, knowing that we already have that perspective, he takes us up a notch. He, he gives us the eagle's eye view, you might say. He gives us that 10,000-foot perspective. In the synoptics, we, we see the path and the woods and the stream. In John's gospel, we see the forest and the, the country and the frontiers of the wider world outside. John gives us more than the events. John is focused on the meaning of the events. In fact, you tend to hear a little less in John's gospel. There is, there is far less teaching, for example, and there are no narrative parables in John's gospel. So you hear a little less, but you see a lot further. Maybe that's the best way of understanding the differences between John and the other gospels. Now, in terms of author and date, the author never explicitly identifies himself, but it was understood from the earliest days as having been written by the Apostle John. 
Furthermore, it has also generally been agreed that John inserts himself carefully into the story under the guise of the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the only title and the only honor that John will claim for himself in the gospel. The focus of this book is squarely upon the person and work of Christ. As for when it was written, we don't know exactly. Any date between A.D. 55 and A.D. 95 is possible. But given what we know, that it was written last, and given that we know that John died around the year A.D. 98 or so, we can probably narrow that window a bit and suggest something between A.D. 80 and 95. But again, can't say for sure. As for why John wrote and the nature of his particular concerns, it seems fair to say that John wanted to emphasize the dignity and deity of Jesus Christ. Now, always have to be careful here because some of our brains are wired for either or thinking as opposed to both and thinking. And so we can hear these different emphases as though they are contradictory when in fact I think they are meant to be seen or heard as complementary. It's often said, for example, that Matthew presents Jesus as king of kings. Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. And John presents Jesus as the son of God. And I think that's fair. That is their particular emphasis. But that is not to say that John wouldn't see Jesus as the suffering servant. Of course he would. And it's not to say that Mark wouldn't see Jesus as the Son of God. Of course he did. In fact, the climax of Mark's gospel is when the Roman soldier attending to the cross of Christ cries out, truly this man was the Son of God, Mark 15, 39. So they're all in agreement. But they are each emphasizing particular aspects of Christ's ministry, and identity. Therefore, while John would no doubt agree that Jesus is the king and the leader that we need and the suffering servant who bears our burdens and iniquities on the cross and the son of man who shows us how to live as perfect human beings, he nevertheless has his own particular emphasis. John wants us to see the unique way in which Jesus reveals God to us. Jesus is the Word of God in John's Gospel. He is God, and He is with God, and He is therefore uniquely suited to declare God to us. And more than that, to declare us to God. Matthew Henry puts it very well. He says, He is the Word speaking from God to us and to God for us. That is the sort of exalted thinking that you get in John's gospel, and that leads us perfectly into the text. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. C.K. Barrett says here that John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. Now, remember, John's particular concern is to show us how Jesus uniquely reveals to us the character and nature of God. He knows all there is to know about God because he is God. 
Listen carefully to the words here. The word was with God and the word was God. Theologians are generally very careful here and with good reason. Many of the most dangerous Christian heresies come out of a careless reading of this text. So let's go slow and let's be precise. When we say that the word was God, we are talking about essence and substance. When we say the word was with God, we are talking about distinct personhood. D.A. Carson supplies a helpful quotation here. He says, The word does not by himself make up the entire Godhead. Nevertheless, the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhood belongs also to him. Closed quote. Verse 2 goes on to say, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I love what Matthew Henry says here about the eternality of the word. He says, the word had a being before the world had a beginning. That is well said. There was never a time when the word was not. He has always been, and he is the agent by which all other things have their being. Now, that is wildly significant, because most coherent thinkers will agree that in order for there to be anything, there has to have been something that has existed forever and that has the power of life within itself. Now, Hindus say that the universe has existed forever and that it has the power of life within itself. Western scientists used to say that too. They used to speak of the steady state theory, and they used to believe that the universe was eternal. But now they know that it had a beginning, which means that there must be something else that has existed forever and that has the power of life within itself. Well, John 1-2 tells you what or who that is. The Word has existed forever, and it has the power of life within itself. All things were made through Him. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is God and the Word of God by which all things came into being. When God spoke in Genesis, and His Word made light and life, that Word was Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own there refers, of course, to the Jewish people. He came uniquely to them. Jesus was often saying, I came to the lost sheep of Israel. He came uniquely to them, but by and large, they did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the doctrine of adoption. John speaks of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. That is, he is Son in a unique way and an eternal way, but we are God's sons by adoption. To all who receive Christ and who believe in his name, he gives the right, the authority to become children of God. Not the natural way, but by the will and plan of God. Hallelujah. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Very quickly, that phrase there, grace upon grace, is very hard to translate into English. It means literally grace in place of grace. There is a sense in which our New Testament graces replace and supersede Old Testament graces. And I think that's useful to see because some of us are inclined to think that there was no grace in the Old Testament. We tend to think that the Old Testament was bad and the New Testament was good. The law was unhelpful, but the Spirit is super helpful. We get trapped in that kind of either-or thinking. But that isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says that the law was a gift. Read Psalm 119. David was pretty excited about the law. He saw it as a marvelous and precious gift. The priesthood was a gift. The temple was a gift. The land was a gift. A good king was a gift. But Jesus is the best gift of all. He supersedes and replaces those earlier gifts. From him we have received grace in place of grace. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. John the Baptist knew who he was and who he wasn't. John was an arrow, and his job was to point to Jesus, and that's exactly what he did. Verse 29 tells us, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's John pointing at Jesus. Verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Come and see. That is the perfect introduction to the Gospel of John. Jesus promises the disciples that they will see great things indeed. They will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, an obvious reference to the story of Jacob in Genesis 28. Colin Cruz says here, When Jesus, alluding to this incident, said to his disciples, You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, he was implying that the place where people encounter God was now in the person of his son, Jesus, and that it was through him that God was now revealing his truth. The greater things people were to see then would be the revelation of God in the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.